Welcome back to System Minutes Trivia, the podcast where we have very delayed interviews. This is Brent. I don't have the rest of the guys with me. We are all recovering from hope. So, to hold you over until we come around next time, we have some recordings that Peyton did at Self, the Southeast Linux Fest. This episode's going to be a little bit different in format. We're not doing news. We're not doing the fatty. We're not doing shared discussion. We're just going to jump right into the interviews. And here we go. This is Peyton. I am with... Jeremy Sands. And you are the... I like to call myself the lead masochist. <laughs> and how did you come up with that title? It's kind of a wink, cheeky nod to you know the amount of effort that goes in. And, it, you know, you have to... Your heart has to be in it because it, it can be a grind at times. And if your heart isn't, you'll fade. And, you know, unfortunately, you've seen that over the years with some of the community events that have unfortunately come and passed. You know, I would have loved to have still had an Ontario Linux Fest to go to and an Indiana Linux Fest and a Kansas Linux Fest and a Northeast Linux Fest. But there's a transition point somewhere these events like year two or three where it goes from being a fun side thing to suddenly real consistent effort to get it done Indeed. right. Indeed. Indeed. As someone who assists with POSCON for the last couple of years, I completely understand where you come from. It's one of those things that if you don't foster and nurture it just right, it just goes away. And then you're like, well, what happened? You know? Yep. How long have you been the lead masochist? So I would say at least five or six years. It's hard to keep track because the bleed out of the people up top after the whole second year at the Marriott fiasco took sure. about a year and a half to two years. So I'd say two thirds of the event. That's a good okay. round. Ball. And the event has been around for a decade. A decade. Okay. All right. So I was in your keynote for a little bit. Really, what you were in a lug, coordinating speakers for a lug, and you decided, let's have a bigger event. So, Is that um, how this got started? Or? Sort of. So, I had always wanted to have a Linux conference in my backyard. You okay. know, something I didn't need to go into another time zone to go to. Yeah. Um, and I had heard in my lug, uh, David Nally and Dave Yates talking about how they wanted a conference, and they were talking about some of the other conferences they go to, because, you know, they were in the fortunate position where... You know, they would go to some of these events every year. Sure. Dave Gates would go to OLF every every year, and uh, David Nally would go to Lisa and Scale. And um, so they had some real world experience with you know what was out there and what could feasibly be done. And luckily, I had them as anchors because you know I'm a big dreamer. And mm-hmm. so when I heard them talk about, it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, let's do this. And you know, the core of us plus a couple of people we pulled in from other lugs in the area, and it's kind of been that. S- Aside from some of the uh, early, particularly the early fallout when there's too many yeah. cooks in the kitchen. Right. But it's kind of been the same core team for about the last four or five years now. That's good. So what do you expect for the future? Oh, dear. Oh, wow. That's a loaded question and a half. <laughs> well, I probably expect to get some political fallout flack from that. But, you know, that's par for the course. I've been getting that sure. for the last couple of years sure. anyway. It's well, just I mean, that now got... I'm not silent about it. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and I realized that, you know, my silence was kind of aiding them in some ways. But, you know, with a two-year contract and it being tucked under my LLC since the IRS is so hostile, FOSS 501c3 filings, I didn't want to be left holding a very expensive two-year bag. So I kept my mouth shut until I was in a place where I was more willing to roll those dice. Sure, sure, sure. I hear that. So with that in mind, the future is going to be all about embracing neutrality and diversity of thought. You know, okay. I, I hate how 
when people use diversity, they never bother to say, yes, but you can be, uh, so there's a monk debate that recently happened about political correctness, and I encourage everyone to go listen to everything Stephen Fry said in that debate, because he's absolutely magnificent, one of the best speakers on a topic I have heard in my lifetime, hands down. He's a good talker. He codifies into such beautifully concise language that people with this diversity demand what with a very quiet, implicit, undiversity yeah. demand of thought and opinion and mannerisms. As Stephen Fry said, paraphrasing that debate, these people are somehow illiberal in their excessive liberality. Mm-hmm. They are somehow uninclusive in their relentless demand for inclusion. Sure. And so it's the conference will have a very much will embrace its stance as Switzerland very publicly and say, you can believe whatever you want as long as you're willing to tolerate those you disagree with. Sure. And along those lines, we're also doing a lot of reorganization because I was hiding. I didn't want to... I'm a bottleneck. Like I, Truth be told, I'm one of the weaknesses of the conference because I hoard the work not because I want to, but because I felt I had to. Because I want to shield some of the people working from sure. you know the crap that I see that they're not seeing. Because I know for some people, when it goes from being fun to a job, that's when they're out. Right. You see that a lot. I mean, I didn't want that to happen. So, But I think once I laid all the cards on the table, everybody's willing to, you know, I haven't had a person yet come to me and say, nope, I'm out. It's more along the yeah. lines of, no, let's do this. Absolutely, yeah. So we're going to embrace neutrality and meritocracy, and we're going to do this the old school, old school hacker way. Sure. I'm aware that Slack is being used for a lot of internal communication. Is there any other closed source software that's being used? So Slack is uh, so not we necessarily that Slack is closed source, but so the uh, yeah so the um, we've been experimenting with different ways to communicate. We have these Midlands that we've had for a while. These FRS <laughs> Midland walkie talkies. The problem is signal to noise. It's when you have enough people on walkie talkies, there's always a chatty Kathy. Mm-hmm. Whereas even though it's terrible, I wouldn't say terrible, even though it's got its own pitfalls with people who like to at channel all the time. Yeah. Slack is at least better signal than noise. What I had set up the previous year was just a group hangout. We want something where there's good, quick, reliable phone alerting. Like we, sure. everyone's already rolling in with an Android smartphone. Let's just take advantage of what everybody's already got. Sure. Slack was merely a, a case of expedience because, of, you know, we have a completely new AV setup done by the guy who normally does our network, and given the amount of workload he was taking on, I gave him whatever leniency he requested. That works. As far as your AV setup, you said that there have been some trials and tribulations with that, even just this past year. Mm-hmm. What is the absolute worst AV setup that you could possibly recall, and what did you learn from that? Whoa. Like, I have no shortage of criticisms on a lot of our setups. Um, <laughs> well, you did mention the two UPS trucks just for you guys. Yeah, yeah. So year. we rented all of our equipment from a company called ATS Rentals at the time. But, woof, man, you'd be surprised how big some of that stuff is. Yeah. I would say our most profoundly negative experience was actually not this year, but prior. We were going for a similar strategy because the problem is you don't want to go hunting down everyone for slide decks. And quite mm-hmm. frankly at least a very good, healthy minority of our speakers are still working on that slide deck, maybe even the hour of their talk. Yeah. You know, tweaking here sure. and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And I don't want to go chasing down for the decks and all that. So if you can just capture the video from the laptop going to the projector I anyway. last year there were some issues with the video capture. Yeah, so HDMI capture is just 
an unseemly hardware nightmare right now mm-hmm. because a lot of the products are coming from factories in China with, well, let's face it, the devices, in some of these cases, the devices are being deliberately shipped with HDCP defeated. Yeah. But as part of that, you know, you're not going to go ask for recourse for a product that's, you know, more or less being used for piracy because they're going to go, ha-ha, and by the way, we're in China. Bye. Yeah, right. So I got a couple of units that had somewhat decent Amazon reviews, and I bench tested one, and it did very well. So I was like, all right, let's do this. The three extras I ordered were all crib deaths within the first two days. And it was an overheating issue. They had not done the engineering to dissipate the heat from the electronics in there. That's insane. So it was a case of we have a really exotic piece of equipment, and they're dying like flies. And there is, I mean, I think we paid a blood ransom for Amazon to ship us a couple of replacement devices of all kinds. Like, we went from having a unified setup to scattered and piecemeal in one day. And that was a constant nightmare because sourcing when you're under the gun is stressful and time-consuming and inefficient. That, two years ago, is definitely the worst. For the people out there considering HDMI capture, I have no affiliation to them, but the Mage Wheel products seem to be the most reliable out there. And that's a little sad to me as an old Myth TV guy who had a soft spot for Hapog. The new Hapog stuff just, they're not taking Linux as seriously as they used to, unfortunately. How do you handle network security and guest information security. How do you, with all the breaches that we've had with, mm-hmm. you know, Equifax and Yahoo and So this is DNA a case where side. I am over the top. I've gone too far to, on that side. So what I normally do after the event is I log into WordPress and I go, select all, delete. I don't want your data. And if I'm breached, I want to be able to say, there was nothing there anyway. The downside is when I think I'm doing a good job of generating weird, unusual registrations, I am nowhere close to as good <laughs> as our attendees are at generating really bizarre registration yeah. setup. So what I'm going to do this year is I'm going to snapshot the database and web route, and I'm going to take that to a air-gapped machine, and that's going to be my little sandbox to find nice. the problem children and debug them. Okay. What about, have you ever been asked by sponsors to supply a list of Absolutely. Multiple times by multiple vendors. Hasn't happened recently. And occasionally when you tell them no, you will never see them again. Yeah, I know Linode has asked several times. Linode hasn't asked us here. Interesting. They asked Boscon last year. They haven't asked us. Maybe that's because Linode's always been in on the party. And if you want visibility, man, if you sponsor these parties, it's hard to be more visible than that. Yeah. But I've definitely had requests from various companies I always tell them no, and occasionally, like, so if you go look at the Southeast Linux Fest Twitter feed, there was an attendee who tweeted us, I don't know, probably, my memory's hazy on December, January, it'll be somewhere in my Twitter timeline on the Southeast Linux Fest account, mm-hmm. and he was using one of those plus alias accounts, so he could track if somebody's family did, right? Huh. And that's, by the way, if you're an organizer, don't do it, because your attendees are too smart for you. There's going to be alias accounts, right. somebody's going to find you. Right. And he sent me a nasty gram saying, who sold my information I demand to know. And I actually backtracked to exactly where and when. And it was because he volunteered to enter a drawing at a vendor's booth. And Ah. they took a picture of Ah. the QR code on his badge with his consent. And then if you look very carefully in the reply thread, he actually apologized. Yeah, that happened to me last year. I talked to somebody and they said, can I just take a picture? And I said, sure. And then nothing ever happened of it. So, and that's why, that's another question. Quiet little sneaky tweak I made this year. This year, for the first time, in the past, what I would do is I would take the billing info, and that would be the V card that you get as the QR code. Mm-hmm. 
This time it was user inputted fields. And some people, and not a small minority either, if I had to ballpark it, I'd say one in five, deliberately chose alias names and alias emails for the badge because of that. Now, I still think overall you want to do that because it's still an easy way to facilitate communication and contacts, but I think allowing everyone total freedom for their own badge kind of levels the playing field a little bit. Indeed. I wasn't asked to snap my cue for this year, so maybe they found out or something. I'm not sure. But, I mean, I honestly had a great time here, and I really appreciate your time. And I'm looking forward to next year, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I had a great time at Blackstone Shooting Sports, by the way, with you. <laughs> it's uh, not a bad indoor range. It was great watching everybody shoot the guns. And oh, for me, it was it. great seeing ESR, you know, yeah. go all dirty hairy with the Silence 22. <laughs> you know, with the one on one. That was nice. I got a chance. Uh, he pulled me aside and was like, here, 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 just take a shoot. And so I was able to put 10 rounds through it. And I was very impressed with, uh, with the accuracy of that. Yeah. Um, I like to tell people, you know, self is definitely not the best run event. We're definitely not the biggest run, or not the biggest event in terms of numbers, but we definitely have the most fun. Sure. Thank you for your time, and I will uh, look forward to seeing more of you, especially next year. Absolutely. Look forward to having you back. More Geeks with Guns time. Absolutely. (laughs) This is Payton with System S Trivia, and I'm sitting here with... Kellen. At Self 2018. So, what do you do? Well, I kind of have two things. I'm a software engineer, specifically okay. a Fedora release engineer, working for Red Hat. And then in my free time, I am the DevOps infrastructure and Mudlib lead okay. for an old school text RPG called Retro Mud. <laughs> so nice. if anybody out there remembers Mud, we're yeah. still alive and kicking. We've been around for 20 years. We're one of the old, as far as I know, I think we're one of the three oldest left. That's interesting. That's interesting. And it's been the same stat, same lead staff for that whole 20 years. Wow, that's impressive. So yeah. you've been doing the MUD for 20 years. How long have you been a software engineer or interested in Linux? Let's see. My first time using Linux, I used Red Hat 4.0 Colgate. It was the Red Hat in the blue box before it was Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Okay. And that was 1996. 1996. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. I went to your talk. Can you briefly describe your talk for me? So, we can... so I had two, so I'm going to ask which one, the container talk? Just the container talk, correct. Okay. So the container talk is I had some problems to solve. And, you know, one of the things is a software engineer, we're lazy. We don't like things to take too long. So we spent a whole bunch of time to make it faster. And last year I'd given a talk on Vagrant and how I was using that to automate and package things up so that it was repeatable. Because when you share work, right, the worst thing ever is, oh, yeah, it compiles for me. Is your build environment the same? Is everything else the same? So I was using Vagrant. That kind of got long in the tooth really quick. So my talk this year was how to use containers to basically – work on development as if you were working just on bare metal, but keep all those packages off of your system, mm-hmm. right? Because what I was working on there, I think there was 38 dependencies. I don't want all that cluttering up my system, right? It's just extra stuff to clean up, putting them in a container, I can do my work, and then when I'm done, I can just unload the container and my system stays clean. Indeed, indeed. So, and I'm an old school systems administrator, so keeping a clean system is kind of a thing. What got you interested in, in being a software engineer or what prompted you to, did you, when you saw the box of Fedora, you were like, I have to run this and I have to figure out what this is. What prompted that? So, <laughs> interesting story with that. So, my first computer was my freshman year of college, 1996, mm-hmm. and it had Windows 3.1. Okay. And I used it for about six days and went, I don't like this. And the guy across the hall, I think, had Slackware, was another distro, and 
And I said, okay, well, I want to get Linux. Well, at the time, there wasn't, you, know, you didn't go on the internet and download, at least not that I knew of. I'd had a computer for a week. So I did the first thing I thought of. I went and looked it up in a catalog and ordered something and had it shipped to my dorm room. <laughs> right? And I remember it was like $50, $60 or something for the CD. It was a CD set. Mm-hmm. I had a paper in it from Metro X. And I started using it. And I went, huh, this is kind of cool. I didn't really have the – I'd only been using computers for a week. So at that point, I was very much a user, very green. And I liked the control I got. I liked that it was it was simple to use but had the complexity to dig in and keep going. And I just, you know, I kept using it from there. And I ended up – I was actually a music major in college, believe it or not. And I got a job working for the university newspaper doing work advertisement flow. And apparently it was shocking that I got that done in about 20 or 30 minutes. They hired me on for four hours a night. Wow. I guess I was the first college kid they'd hired that actually just did the work. <laughs> it wasn't that much work. I was like, well, what do you mean? I, I just did it. And so he's like, well, do you want to learn something else? And that's how I learned database and web design. Yes. And, and then, of course, then you have to learn Apache and learn everything. It just kind of snowballed yeah. because I was interested and I had somebody that was willing to – they needed help and I had the time and they had the payroll. The university had gave said, you have four hours of this guy's time. Yeah. And for the four hours they gave me, it took me 20 minutes to do the actual work. So he just used the rest to teach me how to do, you know, web design, development, backending, database, you know. And Linux just kind of, I mean, we didn't use Linux at that office. They were actually serving on Mac OS 8. Wow. Yeah, it was weird. Wow. But by going home, I, you know, I went home to the dorm room and I had Linux and I played with that. Mm-hmm. So like I, said, I didn't really get heavy into it until probably the early 2000s. Okay. okay. So. so for the future, for the next five years or 10 years, what do you envision – Personally and maybe even professionally, what do you see happening in, in your sphere as far as, say, Docker is concerned or containers are concerned? Or? As far as my sphere, well, in my day job in the Fedora space, one of my kind of side tasks is Fedora has an instance of Taiga. Okay. That's a project management software. And I'm containerizing it just for my own volition and also because the way it's deployed right now, it's there's an Ansible job. There's some things that just don't quite go the way we want it to. and it's cloud services, which means it's not technically supported, so like the community supports it. I want to make it easier so that I can be able to hand this off to anybody and be like, look, here's the container, build it, run it, and go. Mm-hmm. And then from my volunteer work and my, you know, the gaming community I've been working in for 20 years, we have a lot of services that when I first set them up seven or eight years ago, they're all running in root jails. And wow. you can imagine what kind of tooling I've built to when the operating system updates, if a library updates, then updates the root jail, then resets, it's... Mm-hmm. Creaky is a generous way of describing how this sure. stuff works. It sure. works. It's automated. But I don't like it because it's not maintainable. Mm-hmm. But it was the best I could do at the time with what I knew and with what I had. Containers, I think, are going to let me really you know, seal these things away and get what I want, which is isolation of services, and also make them deployable because there's some web services that I want to make. We have an ancient, crufty PHP web app that's terrible. Mm-hmm. I showed it to a friend of mine who's a professional developer, and he said, just throw it away. <laughs> like, you're not saving it. Yeah, um, it's too much spaghetti code. It's not even that. When I first got, I've converted it up, but when I first got it, it was using. I forget now what it's called. This was two years ago, but when PHP first got database connectivity for web applications, mm-hmm. that first spec that was thrown away about a decade ago, <laughs> that's what it was using. Wow. And so, you know, I want to pull it up to pull it away from my SQL to Postgres because I'm a Postgres DBA. Mm-hmm. I was a in a previous job, I was a Postgres DBA architect. Mm-hmm. So I want to pull it to there mostly because I know Postgres and I love Postgres. So I'm just going to push that. I love Postgres for most things, for relational databases. I'm going to push that to there for the web application 
and then there's a bunch of other stuff that was just shoved in there that really shouldn't be in there. That's going to get shoved out to SQLite files. That way I can use containers to deploy those across because we have players in Europe that when they want to access simple questions like, what can my current class do? Or what skills and new things can I learn? And I want to have, I want to be able to deploy that in Europe with the container in a SQLite and just read it in and boom, it's there. And I can put that as part of an, an OpenShift cluster, OpenShift origin. Mm-hmm. And just let those scale up and scale down as needed. Right? So that's it's a lot of work stuff, but that's kind of I've got about a six year roadmap for development. That's develop. impressive. That's impressive. That's that's good to hear. So you mentioned that you run the particulars for this mud. Are there any other hobbies that you have? Is um, there any other is there any other interesting projects that you're working on necessarily outside of the Docker Sphere? So interesting things that I work on outside of Docker Sphere. So I have kind of a half baked project that. I put it on the shelf. I demonstrated the first bits of it last year at Southeast Linux Fest. Mm-hmm. It is a provisioner for Vagrant. Interesting. Because one of the things that we do is with you know with an online game system, it's a free play game community. You know, I don't ex- I can't exactly say I want to spool up a complete staging instance to test stuff. Sure. So and I didn't want to have to like manually set it all up. So I figured out how to in Vagrant set up multiple virtual machines, and that's if you look at the examples, they show you you put two or three four entries. The other thing you can do is that Vagrant file is just a Ruby script. You can actually put in a loop and you can stand up and feed in a list of machines definitions and then stand up as many as you want. So I use Vagrant to stand up seven different instances with Devel, including there's one extra name server because I don't have a, well, I got rid of that. I actually put that on my edge router because I decided that running a name server as a spool up was dumb because then I couldn't get like nice lab names inside the my house. Sure. Right. So... But I set up the set up basically a copy of everything that I have in production, and then I can make you know very large breaking changes there mm-hmm. without spending the extra you know however much money a month to stand that up over. We're hosted with Linode. I'm just going to plug them. They have been a great yeah, provider for me. We, we use Linode all the time. Yeah, we love Linode. Yeah, but you know budgetarily, I mean, even though they're a great cost, we are a free to play game. Sure. And so I'm and because you know I'm sure that they would give me the money for it, but I like to be mindful and spend it like it's my own. If I don't need it. Sure. I won't. And so this project is basically to spin that up. And right now, the way it works is I configure a YAML file that has all the information that describes both my production network, a staging network, and a lab network. And I can stand up all those machines. I haven't done the hooks yet that can connect to Linode. I've been pl- There's a Python connection with Tube. I'm not sure if anybody out there has heard of it. Send in comments to uh, and Please. let him know because Absolutely. I've never seen it used anywhere else, but it's a connection to the Linode API. Mm-hmm. But what I'd like to have it do for Linode is the same thing I do for staging, which is this YAML describes on machines, IP addresses, MAC addresses, the whole thing. And I say Vagrant up, it reads in the config, it loads it dynamically, I can do it on the fly. Interesting. Interesting. And then it all gets the same names because they, they're defined as a static structure. Interesting. There's a Python project that does something kind of similar, which is why I shelved it. I just haven't had time to come back around because, well, life gets busy and I've had other things to get done. And Indeed. I mean, it's a volunteer project. I'm the only infrastructure person. Sure. So, <laughs> sure. It makes right. sense. So when you were giving your talk about containers, you mentioned improving test time by 60% or... What it was is that when I stood up my virtual machine, mm-hmm. I work on Fedora at work. And if I'm on the road and I just want to do it like while I'm on the road, but I don't have a work laptop with me, I want to use the Mac that I have. Mm-hmm. And I would map in my data via NFS. NFS in the Mac, I got it to work a little bit, but I don't. it's a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. And then Indeed. NFS mounted off of my local laptop. I put holes in the firewall. I'd update something we could change. And then we have, it was just a constant thing. And, and, you know, it worked well for about six months. And then all of a sudden, I just started having problem after problem after problem. And I said, you know, mm-hmm. 
I can keep maintaining this. I can probably figure it out. But do I really want to be spending the time on it? Right. I really said, well, what can I do better? And I was at a, I was at the Flock Conference in Cape Cod last August. Mm-hmm. And I was, just went to a talk with a friend because they wanted me to come to their, their talk. They were talking about containers. And I was there for moral support. And the guy sitting next to me, his name is Dusty Mabe. He's one of the atomic, I think, atomic or the container guys for Fedora. Mm-hmm. He was doing uh, documentation in Sphinx out of a container. I'm like, how did you do that? He's like, oh, I just do this, this, this. And I thought, wow. So you can skip all that because Sphinx is a lot of you know add-ons and dependencies. Sure. So I'm like, I wonder if I can. I wonder if I could take that and, and you know do something with it with what I'm doing. I didn't have anything practical at the time, and I'm a guy that if it's not something I can do practically, it kind of goes to the back of my brain and percolates. Sure. So when I got this project to add some work in Punji, which is how we make uh, distribution compose images for Fedora, mm-hmm. I said, well, I could stick this all into a container. Because this virtual machine, I stand it up, it takes forever to copy all the files in. Oh, and if I edit it locally and then like commit with git out of the virtual machine, I have to install my Vim plugins. It takes 20 minutes for them all to install. Indeed. And you know, I can do it once to spend resume, yes. But then, you know, if I, I, I carry everything on a thumb drive, I don't care because I'm working between three or four hardware machines. Well, then Vagrant gets screwed up. You have to destroy it anyway or go in and edit the, they have IDs. It's just, there was too much overhead. And that's what really led me to, let's try it in a container. And I did it. And, you know, the container works as if it's just on the, on the command line. So there's no getting into the virtual machine. There's no getting out. Right. It's not a lot. It's to think it was a 13-second difference. Mm-hmm. But think about how many tests you write and how many times you say, I change this code, I run and see what happens. I make this small change, what happens? It adds up. Yeah, 13 seconds up. times 100 runs in a day. Mm-hmm. You're talking about some significant amounts of time. And you put that over a week or two of work. You have really significant amounts of time. And honestly, I don't get paid to waste time. I get paid to be productive. Indeed. And also, I'm an efficiency nut anyway. So, you know, I look for how can I be as fast as possible without being, you know, there's fast enough. But like for this, there's a couple places. And I'm starting to do more of it. Like I do my blogging for the game system in Jekyll. And I don't want to teach a few of my contributors how to stand up a whole Ruby ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That's not what they do. They're content creators. Yeah. They do writing. I don't want to have to teach them all that extra, right? Right. So I can containerize it, give it to them, and now they can contribute to the blog. They can run the live Jekyll instance. It serves up Jekyll to their local browser. Mm-hmm. They can go look at it, see how it works, because I'm teaching the Markdown too, like they've not used Markdown. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can do all of these things and give them tools. And for me, the key thing of technology, the thing that's driven most of my career is how do I enable other people to be more efficient? Mm-hmm. How do I make other people more effective? And containers, I've found... I can do that with containers. And it's been, you know, when I first saw them four or five years ago, I thought, oh, you know, it's a typical fad over a way. I found the value in it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was the why well, I want to talk about it this year. Because if there's people out there that are were like me, like, well, it's all for server things or it's just a new hotness, mm-hmm. it's going to go away. Right. No, no, there's actually some real value. And there's Indeed. been some really good work done. And I know my concern was always security-based, but, you know, with the introduction of having C-group support, and then moving things to having root containers and then separate containers that don't have root. So, like, if you try and run systemd in a regular container, it won't do it. Mm-hmm. Right? right? It's only in a root container. So, so some of the separation work that's happened, and one of the guys in my office, his name is Dan Walsh, he talks on this all the time. He's pretty much one of the authorities on it. Mm-hmm. Other folks who know the name, I go, Dan Walsh, why do I know that? He used to be known as the SE Linux guy. So, yeah. so he's very security-minded. Sure. He's a great engineer. He's easy to talk to, too. Like, he's very humble. He will answer. I go ask him questions, and I know they're dumb, but I just don't know. I don't know what I don't know, what I don't know so I need to ask. And he will take the time to sit there and tell me. 
as said is you know so you know for, the, for that kind of thing like if you want more information about great infrastructure containers uh look up dan walsh's blog too okay we'll do it yeah because he's okay. really good i appreciate you taking the time to speak with me here it's my pleasure i will let you know when we're gonna broadcast the episode and when you're including that and uh cool. thank you again. thank you much it's a pleasure appreciate it thank you thank you this is paid in with sister miss trivia and i'm sitting with Know what's your life from the Ask Noah Show. Hey, man, how's it going? It's going pretty well, man. I'm having a great time here at Self this year. How about yourself? Me too. I absolutely love Self. I come for the people, and I, I stay for the interesting conversation and the great food, and, uh, and of course, the beer swap. The beer swap was a lot of fun. There was some really, really good stuff in there. So you're currently doing the Ask Noah Show, and what other shows are you currently uh Right now, just the talk show. Yep. All right, that's good. And you've been in podcasting for quite a long time, especially broadcasting in general. About how long has that been? Started in 20... Well, I started working for the radio station in, I believe it was 2013. Okay. I started working with Jupiter Broadcasting in 2015 and been doing it ever since. I've done a number of different shows, did a couple of shows for the radio station. I was, of course, the co-host of the Linux Action Show for a while, and then I have guest hosted on a number of the shows in Jupiter Broadcasting. And now host my own talk radio show. What got you into that? And I'm sorry if you've answered this question in the past before. Uh, this is mostly just a, you know, familiarize myself with you and then help our audience get to know you a little bit better, too. Mm-hmm. What got you into wanting to put your knowledge on the air? So I graduated from the University of North Dakota with a degree in communication. So I was set up for a while to go into some form of media. I just didn't really know it. I did. I had no intention when I graduated of actually continuing on in media. It was just a major that worked out for the kind of credits I was working for sure. and so on and so forth. But because of that, it landed me a job with the radio station and then I progressed on. What I always tell people is that I am a Linux user that hosts a radio show. I am not a radio host that does a Linux show. And there's a difference. And let me explain the difference. The difference is if I ever come to an impasse where I have to choose between continuing to use Linux or continuing the radio show, I'd absolutely choose continuing to use Linux, right? We're going to use Linux for everything. We're going to use it for the broadcast. We're going to use it on the personal machines, the media machines. And if I can't do a project, if I can't do a thing with Linux, I'm not interested in doing it. Interesting. Obviously, we're at an open source conference. What are your thoughts on using, like, say, Slack for communication or maybe something that's closed source to you know, that may operate on Linux, but what are your thoughts on using closed source in Linux? Do you have a I, preference in that? My hard line is the sand is I want to run Linux on my metal because I trust the security, I trust the reliability of Linux on my metal. Now, as it comes to software, the software is running on top of that operating system. If in a perfect world, sure, I would love everything to be floss. I'd love everything to be open source, Libre yeah. software, right? But the problem is at the moment, I don't see that being practical for a lot of people. And I have to be careful with that because a lot of times the, oh, it's not practical for me is an excuse. And it's an excuse to be lazy and it's an excuse for complacency and it's an excuse for mediocrity. I think that there are absolutely times where proprietary software can be a benefit to the user and you are sacrificing a minimal amount of freedom to use that software. I'll give you a perfect example. Lightworks is a video editor, right? Mm-hmm. Nine out of 10 jobs I can do in Caden Live. And I would choose to do nine out of 10 jobs in Caden Live. But that one time when I have that particular project that I absolutely need multi-camera editing for, something so forth, I don't see a harm in firing up Lightworks for a little bit, running that particular job, 
and then shutting Lightworks back down going back to Caden Live. A lot of people will use that as an excuse, a jumping point to say, well, what's different about just booting into Windows for a little bit? Well, nothing per se, but remember, now you've given up half your hard drive space because you've dual booted your computer, and are you really rebooting afterwards? Are you really going back right. into Linux? What can you, I mean, are you not just, oh, you got to check something on the internet, why not just fire up Mozilla Firefox in Windows? So it becomes a slippery slope. But yeah, I use Slack, I use Telegram, I use Lightworks, I use Steam. All of those are proprietary applications, but I'm running them on Linux. So at the end of the day, I feel that I feel that my hardware is secure. I know that it's more reliable, and any of that proprietary software could go away, and I would absolutely make do with the open source stuff. No problem. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I understand you on that. I agree completely. Where do you see your broadcasting going in the future, or, or even Linux users in the future? What do you see the direction it taking for you? Obviously, everyone says this is the year of the desktop. Mm-hmm. You know, what are your visions for that? I want to help people get on Linux. I want to teach people about Linux, and I want to give back to the Linux community. And I was really fortunate that Jupiter Broadcasting gave me an opportunity to park a passion of mine and expand it. And I'm hoping that opportunities open up in the future where I'm able to do more shows for them or do more shows in general, really. I would like to just be able to get out there and tackle different niche things that aren't being covered in the tech community because there's not a quote-unquote sustainable audience behind it. I think that Linux on ham radio, for example, is a really undercover topic. Now, do I think that there's, you know, a million people that want to want to download a show like that and do i think that there's hundreds of thousand dollars of ad revenue in it no absolutely not you know that's pie in the sky but uh, i do think that there is an underserved market and i think that that's something that i would enjoy filling and the great thing about doing this as a passion as opposed to an actual paid position is i'm not beholden to anyone i'm fortunate enough to have a day job that can fund these activities so when i go on the air and i start broadcasting It's pure passion, it's pure fun, and as long as I'm getting enjoyment out of it at the end of the day, then that's all I needed. And so if I can expand that hobby, I'd be more happy. Yeah. So I have a question that actually that Root sent me to ask you or or to expound on a little bit. He really wants to get your perspective on modern media, like Mm -hmm. YouTube, Twitch, Twitter even, Facebook. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on, number one, I'm going to break down a little bit, Zuckerberg, Mm -hmm. Facebook, data retention, YouTube, and then also your thoughts on some of the breaches we've had, mm-hmm. especially DNA breaches, uh, you know, Equifax, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on those? It kills me to stand up for people that I know live to spit in my face, but the reality is that Mark Zuckerberg owns a private company. Not mm-hmm. a private as in it's not IPO, but a private company as in it's he's in control of that company. He makes the decisions for that company. It's not a public service. It's not funded by the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. It's a privately owned company. Right. And Mark gets to decide what he wants his platform to be about. And if Mark decides that he wants to say, I don't like you and you and you and you and you and you, and so this is the content I'm going to put on my site and this is the content I'm not going to allow on my site, Mark Zuckerberg absolutely has the right to do that. Absolutely, Google absolutely has the right to decide what they want to have on YouTube. So my answer, what do I think of data retention? If you agreed to give them if you agreed to give them that data and they keep it, then and they're abiding by the terms of that contract, then they've done nothing wrong. And you either choose to engage with them or you choose not to engage with them. If they don't follow the agreement as laid out as laid out in contract, then they're in violation of contract law and we should come after those companies. But I don't have a problem with Facebook collecting data. I don't have a problem with Google collecting data. People voluntarily use those services. And as much as very loud voices would like to tell us, hey, we can't live without these services. We can't live without these companies. The truth is, yeah, you can. We've done it before. We can do it again. You just 
don't want to choose to live without those companies. And until until enough people walk away from those services, there isn't a lot of incentive for the next Google or the next Facebook to start up. Indeed. So how do you feel about, so going back to more modern media, how do you feel about YouTube's policy, something called YouTube policies or, or even uh, the ability to go on YouTube and find this massive information, like say being able to repair an iPhone? Mm-hmm. Do you agree with the ability to be able to do that? You know, Absolutely. The right to repair bill was something that I followed in many states when it came out, and I think it's an absolutely fantastic piece of legislation. Indeed. If you own a device, you should own that device. You should have the ability to fix that device. Now, there's a lot of companies that say, well, we need to be able to fix the device for you because we need specific software or we need a specific cable or we need specific uh, skill set or something like that. That's absolutely, I don't have a problem with sure, that. Sure. If you want to make proprietary stuff, I don't necessarily condone it, but I have no interest in trying to, for, at least from the rule of law, force somebody to open source their hardware or their software code. Where I have a problem is when a manufacturer like John Deere, for example, can't give me any reason at all that uh, of why I'm not allowed to repair my own device. Mm-hmm. And they say things like, well, we want to keep users from breaking it. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense now, does it? If the user wants to break it, they're comfortable with taking that chance. John Deere should let them take that chance. And so to intentionally take steps to prevent somebody from repairing their own device that they own, especially when it's like a multi-million dollar tractor, I find that to be a bit absurd. Indeed. And of course, we're referencing the DRM that was built into John Deere tractors. Yes, sir. Preventing the ability to, what, was it flash firmware or... Flash or, it went even deeper than that. Diagnose they wouldn't uh, issues. Eat, John Deere would not even allow you to possess a like the diagrams and stuff. So there are people on the internet that would go through and mm-hmm. re-diagram things out. If you ever watch any of Louis Rosman's videos, he's really big on this, right? He creates diagrams for other people to repair their devices, and they were trying to prevent even that from getting distributed. Indeed. So I was observing a conversation you had earlier. What are your thoughts on the ability to, you know, 3D print something? Mm-hmm. Say, uh, you know a firearm or, uh, you know, a key or, you know, something that is not necessarily always available mm-hmm. or, you know, what are your thoughts on that specifically? I find it to be a freedom of speech issue, to be honest with you. It's one of those things where we all saw that commercial back in the in the 90s that said, you wouldn't steal a purse, you wouldn't steal a thing, you wouldn't steal a car. Well, yes, I would. If I could download a car, you better believe I would be downloading I, a car, okay? Absolutely. We'd all be downloading cars, so don't kid yourself. I, I don't steal a car because I don't want to break into somebody's car and take their car out of their possession. There's a difference between taking something out of somebody else's possession and duplicating something, right? Sure. And this is not to say that I advocate for piracy or anything like that. You should absolutely pay for content that you want. But let's also not pretend on the other end of it, like... Downloading an MP3 is the same thing as stealing a car, right? And so we have to start taking a look at that when it comes to printing anything, be it paper, words, or even guns, or even objects. The reality is, if 3D printers are reality and anybody can purchase a printer, let's not pretend that one pile of plastic configured in a certain way is somehow more dangerous, you know, or more oppressive than another different pile of plastic. What I would find to be oppressive is for the hand of the federal government to come in and say, you, we've decided you can't print a piece of plastic that's that shape, but you can p- print a piece of plastic that's this shape. That is a dangerous, slippery slope that I don't Indeed. think we should even start now, much less continue. Indeed. I agree completely with that. I really wish that we could kind of get away from this idea of the federal government dictating and mm-hmm. deigning and, you know, saying these things. You know, it, it doesn't help the process of free, open, neutral Internet. Absolutely not. What are your thoughts on the recent overturn Version overturned vote by the, uh, the by the Senate to uh, for the FCC repeal. So it's interesting. Net neutrality is an interesting is a very interesting concept because on one hand, 
I don't like the idea of the federal government having the arbitrary power to decide how the internet runs. At the other at the other end of the spectrum, though, I'm not real happy with the likes of Comcast or CenturyLink or whoever else, you know, arbitrarily deciding the internet too, and it's very difficult to compete at that level with that money. But here's where I take issue. If we wanted to have net neutrality, then 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was, when the ISPs came and said, look, we want to bury fiber. It's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So we want to know, are we or are we not a utility? Are we a utility or are we not a public utility? Tell us. They said, not a public utility. Go ahead and bury your fiber. So they paid for that fiber lines. Right. Now, if the federal government wants to get two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the state to approve a constitution to the United States that says every citizen has the right to the Internet, and we're going to bury fiber all over the United States, and we'll have the federal government government Internet. I'm not saying I'm a proponent of that, but I'm willing to have that conversation. I am not willing to have a conversation in which we force private businesses who took a big risk and spent hundreds of millions of dollars and now deprive them of the profits that they had projected that they were going to earn by making this investment. Just because they played their cards right and the federal government said, nah, telephone wire is good enough, and now we realized how stupid that sounds, that is their lack of insight should not be passed on to the ISPs now. And so... For that reason, I'm happy about the overture. And again, I think that there are legitimate concerns that warrant exploration and possible solutions. But I think that discussion has to absolutely start from the standpoint of how can we do this without being unfair to these businesses? And I think the only way to do that fairly is, again, a constitutional amendment. Two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states. Indeed. Indeed. One of the things that people have complained about is that they move in somewhere and they have one option. Comcast or Charter or Tunnel Cable mm-hmm. or AT&T, Verizon Files, they don't have a smaller option. They don't have a cheaper, more affordable, what have you option. Mm-hmm. Google Fiber has been prohibited from being sent out to some of these places. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about freeing up or deregulating the internet bill as opposed like, say, the, the power was deregulated in mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of states? What are your thoughts on doing so? As you're going through that question, I was almost cut you off to ask, well, do you know why it's very difficult for them to compete? And of course, the reason, and you said it, mm-hmm. is because they are so overly regulated. And I'll give you an example. One of the companies that works, that provides a lot of support and has donated a lot of equipment and continues to support the Ask Noah show is a company called Vox Telesis. Mm-hmm. And they provide SIP service. But because they are a telco and they have that designation, they are required to pay a certain amount of taxes to be a telco. And what you find is if you just launch a Skype variant or Hangout variant or whatever else, you are not subject to those taxes. Now, let's face it. At the end of the day, does it really matter that you're dialing a 10-digit phone number and connecting over a phone network? Or is the reality that if you want to talk to person A and your person B and you have a IP connection and you have VoIP going and you can talk between those two just because it never touches a POTS network, does that really make a difference? Or are you facilitating voice communication a different way? And they're not paying those taxes. So that means that they're not playing on the same playing field as the telco. And so, yes, we absolutely have to get rid of, if you got rid of all this government regulation and just let businesses compete, you'd have more internet providers than you can shake a stick at. And the proof to that is look at something like cell phone manufacturers and cell phone companies. Now, granted, they are subject to a lot of those telco restrictions, but look at how fast they are popping up massive amounts of infrastructure. And then you have companies like Ting and Cricket who partner with the larger ones and say, well, we'll buy blocks and we'll become a mobile virtual Mm -hmm. network operator and we'll provide phones for, you know, $8 a month or $6 a month or whatever it is. So I think that that sort of capitalism and that sort of free market encourages a lot of 
change in a lot of competition, whereas right now we have an overregulated market, and so it's not really any surprise that you'll come down to like two or three ISPs. Yeah, right. Well, I really appreciate your time. I uh, definitely enjoyed having a conversation with you here in itself, and uh, if you have any questions, let me know. What I'll do is when uh, we go to air the show, I'll, I'll let you know when that's going to happen, and you can listen to it and do what you will. Awesome. Yeah, I will give you guys a retweet and all that. So thanks for having me. I appreciate Absolutely. it. And that has been System Minutes Trivia. I'm Brent. As I said, the rest of the guys aren't with us for this episode. You, that was Peyton that you heard. We'll be back to our normal format and schedule with the next episode. Thanks. See you around. 